Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here with Elaine and Soisy. Elaine is an assistant professor of global health at Boston University. Elaine, welcome to the Twimble AI podcast. Thank you for having me, Sam. Absolutely. Really looking forward to digging into the conversation. You are working on a lot of interesting topics centered around an area that we're all paying a lot of attention to, epidemiology. Who knew that you would be you know, in a role that everyone's curious about uh, when you started this. Uh, How did you get started? Yeah, so I'm originally from Cameroon, um, moved to the U.S. at 16, and um, I studied math as an undergrad, but I really wanted to do applied math. I wasn't really good at theoretical math. And so I, I applied to programs, was thinking about doing biostats, because I was interested in health applications of math. Um, And then my mentor, I did an internship at NIH, and my mentor said, so that's the National Institutes of Health in in DC. And my mentor said, study statistics instead of five stats. And she said, you you would learn the methods and you can apply them to whatever you want to apply to, instead of just focusing on a specific area of statistics. So I applied really late into a statistics program at Virginia Tech, got accepted. And I did my master's statistics, but I still wanted to do more applied stuff. And I was already working in a lab that I was doing um, computational epidemiology. So they were developing these large scale models to predict how diseases were spread. So they would take a city like Seattle, for example, and replicate the population of Seattle down to the, the census level. So if you took a census of the city of Seattle and you took a census of the model, it would be identical. And then they will simulate disease spread over those populations and see how it spread and then look at different interventions. So basically what we're doing right now in real life. So they would say, if we close schools, what would happen? If we shut down businesses, what would happen? Um, if we had a vaccine that was like 80% uh, effective, what would happen to the population? So I got really fascinated by that and decided I wanted to do my PhD in that area. So I ended up getting a PhD in computational epidemiology. Oh, wow. And what was your specific PhD topic? Uh, forecasting uh, influenza spread using network models. Using network models? Yeah. And have you, uh, have you applied the similar types of techniques to COVID data? I did, have. Did they apply? Um, did they apply equally, or is there something specific to implement? I, I haven't, but I have colleagues who are doing that. We're using some of those models that we developed back in the day to do those predictions. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So you you have uh, fairly broad research interests, and you presented on quite a few of those at the recent machine learning for global health workshop at ICML. Uh, which is, uh, or your presentation focused on kind of the intersection of machine learning and epidemiology. Um, you know, before we dig into your specific research interests, uh, I'm, I'm curious what your, can you give us some background on that workshop and um, the theme that brought folks together? Yeah, so the workshop was focused on global health and 
it brought together a very diverse group of people to talk about different problems in global health and how they were trying to solve those problems. So the, the main focus was, well, how are people using machine learning in different spaces and what are the specific problems that they were trying to address? Mm -hmm. And uh, in terms of your specific research, um, you know, let's talk through some of the, the things that you're uh, focused on it, but actually, before we get to before we get to specific projects, is there? How do you describe your research interest broadly? I am very interested in data um, and technology. <laughs> <laughs> so, I if I see a data set, I want to know how can we use this data to improve health. So, I think about things that people have not done before and what a novel ways to look at things. So for example, in 2014, I started thinking about um, restaurant reviews. So if people were going to restaurants and eating and writing reviews about those restaurants, that could be a useful form of information. So if we wanted to track the spread of foodborne diseases in the community, we could use that data. And you had departments of health that were actually thinking about that same problem at about the same time. And so we developed all those models where we would mine information from places like Yelp. So if someone went to Yelp, ate at a restaurant, and wrote about the, the, the experience on Yelp, we captured that data and looked at what people were talking about and how that could inform disease surveillance. So that's what I'm really interested in. So if there's a digital data source out there, I want to know how can we use it to improve health. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember uh, you speaking about this, uh, the restaurant review at Black and AI. Was that this year or, or the most recent year or the year yeah, before? That was last year, yeah. Okay, okay. And uh, maybe, you know, give us a, 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 you know, a little bit more on, on that use case and what some of the, um, some of the things that came out of it were. Yeah, so we actually worked with uh, local departments of health to develop a platform where they could look at reviews as they come in and look at um, postings on Twitter. So if people were posting about having football illness in a particular city, they could see what people were saying. And then there are two things they could do. If a lot of people were talking about the same restaurant, they could actually go out and do targeted restaurant inspections. So instead of just having things scheduled in the future, they can say, it looks like something is wrong right now, let's go check it where the idea was that if if there's something wrong the, with the restaurant, then it can stop more people from getting infected. And then the second thing was if people were talking about having similar symptoms about the same time, then they could actually go out into outbreak investigations. So there could be an outbreak happening in the community if you have 10 people talking about having similar symptoms within the same day or, day or two days or even within the same week. So they could actually go out and investigate if outbreaks have happened. And there are health departments that have been able to find outbreaks that were not reported to them by looking at what people were posting on those websites. If I remember correctly, one of the things that caught my, my eye or ear at the time was that you were doing some work with, uh, or I, I think you mentioned St. Louis in, yeah. uh, which, you know, where I'm based. Um, you were working with the local health department here? Correct, yes. So we worked with them to develop a platform to survey, okay. so to monitor reports of football illnesses. Okay, yeah. very cool. Yeah, I think one of the things that, you know, outside of, uh, 
you know, the occasional movie like Outbreak and the like, you know, that uh, has become a lot more clear about uh, epidemiology to many of us is how much work goes into actually surveilling and tracking and uh, all of these, um, you know, all these things that these agencies are doing behind the scenes to kind of monitor, you know, diseases. Um, I don't think I had a full appreciation for that before COVID. Yes. And when public health is working, we don't really think about it. Mm-hmm. It's when we have major outbreaks and we see things happening in our communities that we start thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about some of the use cases that you explored in your presentation. One of the ones that I know you're really excited about is uh, some work you did around satellite imagery. Uh, what was the problem there that you were looking to solve? So the idea for our project was to to think about ways in which we get data. If we had an outbreak, let's say we had like the current pandemic, and it started in a location where we didn't have access to data, is there a way that we can look at what is happening in the community to get signals that there's actually something happening? Or you can even think about it retrospectively. So let's say there's been an outbreak that started somewhere and we don't know when it started. We don't know when people started getting infected. Can we go back and look at satellite images of hospital parking lots to see if there was a significant change at a particular point that could lead us to investigate a bit more whether that was when the outbreak started. So for this particular study, we looked at three different countries. Um, I think it was Mexico, Chile, and Argentina. And we looked at hospitals in those in those uh, countries and we looked at hospital parking lots and tracked how people were using the parking lots over time to see how that compared with reports of influenza-like illnesses in those communities. And we were able to show that you could actually capture trends in influenza-like illnesses during the flu season by just looking at how people were using hospital parking lots. Oh wow! And so the the data sources were these um, were these open source uh, data sets that were readily accessible online, or did you acquire them directly from the satellite companies? Where did where did the data sets come from? So we had to buy the data. Um, we worked with a, a company to buy the data from Digital Globe. Okay. Um, to to see if yeah, so we we had to target specific hospitals. So the company helped us do to identify and collect or retrospectively find that data for those hospitals. Okay. And was the data expensive or is it pretty easy for you to to get that data? It was expensive. It was expensive. But we've also done um, studies where we've used Google data, satellite imagery data to look at things like inequalities in U.S. cities. So one -hmm. idea was that if we can capture the built environment in a particular neighborhood, we could see whether that could link to specific health outcomes. So if you go to some states and you move between one neighborhood to the next, the life expectancy can be as much, the difference can be as much as 16 to 20 years. And the reason for that is things like low income versus high income, um, which leads to access to different resources. It leads to issues around safety. And so looking at the neighborhood, we constructed an an indicator for different neighborhoods across six different cities. And so a neighborhood in that case is a census tract and on average it has about 3,000 people. 
and we constructed an indicator and then showed that by just looking at the neighborhood, you could tell which neighborhoods are going to have higher obesity prevalence and which ones are going to have low obesity prevalence. Mm. Mm. Yeah, going back to the the satellite imagery and the the parking lot, so you've got the this input data coming from Digital Globe that's mm-hmm. unlabeled. Did you compare that to um, reported uh, just reported incidents of uh, was it flu? Influenza yeah, influenza-like illnesses. So it wasn't okay. just the flu. We also had um, the common cold and other viruses that have similar symptoms when people get infected. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so you, you know, essentially produce a labeled set based on the this publicly reported information. Correct. So for each satellite image of um, of a hospital, we would have the company would basically count <laughs> the number of cars that were in that image. So mm-hmm. they would draw a line across the neighborhood of that hospital, and then count how many cars were in in the parking lots and mm-hmm. how many parking lot spaces were available. So if you had an overfill, then that would signify that a lot of people were showing up. And we could look at this data over time to see how it had changed and how that could possibly relate to disease outbreaks. Mm-hmm. And was the, <clears throat> you know, when you think of that use case, was the primary you know, novelty or contribution, just the application of the of satellite imagery to this aspect of public health? Or did you have to do some interesting tricks with either the satellite data or with the, you know, the, uh, the labels or, you know, the the network that you were using? Um, I think it was mostly the novel application to this mm-hmm. particular problem. Um, we we know that we can use things like social media data and other data sources, but those are not always available in some countries. And so we were trying to think about what is something that is available for every country, uh, at least hopefully available if you can afford mm-hmm. it, and could that be useful for disease surveillance? Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And so the did you find any? Were there interesting? Um, you know, what surprised you in, in doing that? Was it all kind of straightforward what you expected it to work and it worked and, you know, great? Or did you run into a lot of surprising results? Um, I really wasn't expecting it to work. <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, there's so much that happens in the hospital. So people could be showing up at the hospital for so many different reasons. And we try to control for those reasons and look at what are some other reasons why people would be at the hospital. Mm-hmm. But none of them could actually predict as well as when we looked at disease cases for that particular period. Um, so it was it was definitely surprising to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um... And so that was uh, one of the examples that you talked about at the, this presentation. You also spent some time talking about health behaviors uh, in, in Africa in particular. You know, tell us about your research there. So the, the studies that we're doing in Africa are around trying to think about how people are changing their behaviors as 
cities grow as people have access to things that maybe were not there before. Um, a good example is fast food restaurants. So in the last two years, I've traveled across several African countries for conferences and meetings, and they're just places that did not have fast food restaurants now have them. Um, so you go, you see KFC and you see all these different um, fast food restaurants that are based in the US. And that is changing the way people eat, is changing the way people think about food, but it's also changing, it's always affecting people's health as well. So places where we didn't used to have high prevalences of chronic diseases are now starting to have that. And the expectation is that over time, it's just going to continue increasing. And so we've been thinking, how can we start setting up a framework where we can use some of the information that people are putting on the internet to monitor changes in behaviors and hopefully predict how those diseases will, the prevalence of diseases will change over time. And so what are some of the, the specific types of information that you're looking at there? So we've been looking at such data specifically. So are people searching for things like, how do I lose weight? Or um, are people searching for specific diets? Are people looking for genes? Are people looking for other things that could indicate that either their diets have changed or that they were trying to get healthy? And then try to see how that links to or correlates with obesity prevalence across different regions. And what kind of results did you find there? It's been very interesting. Um, so the things that are so obvious, the things that we're actually finding, so things like how, how to lose weight tend to be very significant when you look at its correlation with obesity prevalence or people searching for gyms or um, treadmills, for example. Those all correlate with, with obesity prevalence. And so it's, it's something that I hope to find, but it's also how do we use this information now that we know that people are searching for these things across the continent, how can we use it to build interventions to prevent the, the increase of um, this chronic diseases? Mm. This is the one that surprises me a little bit. I would think that some cities are just more health conscious or fit or something like that. And the people in those cities look for gyms more than others, independent of whether they're, you know, particularly, I guess, health consciousness, you know, there's going to be a, a correlation to health consciousness, but not necessarily to obesity. You know, they, they, um, you know, they may be less obese because they search for this more, uh, because just based on the culture of that city. Did you run into issues like that? No. So we've not done this down at the city level. Most of the data we have right now is at the, the country level. So we're, Got all, it. we're looking at all of this at the country level. Okay. But that could be one factor, but as cities grow as well and become more health conscious, you also see an increase in obesity as well, because there are going to be people who are working out and they're going to be people who don't have access to to the resources to, to actually work out or to eat healthy. Got it. Got it. And so what types of specific approaches did you apply to the data to get to the results that you got? So most of the data is really straightforward to download. Um, you just, you go to Google Trends and you, you can get search trends for different terms. And then we do modeling. So we use things like um, random forest regression to see if we can actually, because we have 
111 terms that we used and then try to figure out which ones are most predictive and which ones would be useful in actually in using the model to look at obesity prevalence. Mm -hmm. And the, 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 you know, looking for gyms and those kinds of terms were the ones that you found to be most predictive. Yeah. Those are were the there, ones I would find to be most predictive. Were there ones that surprised you that you thought, you know, you thought would be more predictive than they actually were? Really, not really. <laughs> it was actually it. It was maybe too typical, I guess, in a sense, um, because we've okay. done similar studies for the U.S. where we looked at obesity and other things, and these are the things that we ended up seeing. So it's kind of being reflected in in African uh, countries. But I'm sure if we start looking at you know regions or cities, we'll see variability in what people are looking for. Got it. So going back to kind of what was most interesting here, in this case, it was the application of this information where you applied it as opposed to the specific you know, techniques that you use or data because you've done or have seen similar things done uh, here. Yeah, yeah, precisely. It's where it's being applied. OK, what what's your take on the general state of uh, applying these kinds of approaches to understanding health in Africa in general? I think uh, I'm excited. <laughs> I'm excited that, you know, there is data because for years I was looking for, for those kinds of data to see if it could be useful. So I'm excited that there is data, but I think there's still, there's still a need to develop more contextualized approaches, especially when we start thinking about interventions because the way people approach things in most African countries is not going to be the same as in the U.S. or in the Western world. And so there's still that need of, okay, now we know people are searching for this, but if we had to develop interventions, how would we develop those interventions and how would we make sure that they're effective? Mm, so meaning the approaches that we might use from a analytical perspective to identify you know, the, the key terms are the same, but then when we want to actually do something about it, the approaches, you know, are likely to be very different. Yes. Uh, actually, in yeah. both cases, it could be different. Um, okay. So approaches to identifying key terms might also be different. And we've seen that in a different study. I think it just depends on the topic. Um, you so just got lucky on the, the health behaviors one. Yeah. So health behaviors <laughs> one seems to work. But if we, we looked at infectious diseases and we found that we actually had to think very differently in terms of what people would be looking for. In what way? In, in, in the fact that, so we looked at influenza-like illnesses. So we wanted to see if someone had the flu, would they actually go and search for the kinds of symptoms that people in the US search for? And that was not the case. So people would not search for a timely flu or search for, um, I don't know what else the people tend to search for in the US. Um, so they might not search for the specific symptoms that people look for in the US, but they would search for home remedies instead. Mm. So they might look up whether ginger actually works or if um, a specific type of tea works. And so we had people who were from Cameroon tell us, like, and also from Nigeria as well, tell us, like, what would your mother search for if she was on Google looking up things and she had the cold? Okay. So what are some of those terms? And we found those to be very useful. Like does chicken soup work for the cold or something yeah. as opposed to treatment for achy muscles or something? Precisely. 
Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so we've talked a little bit around uh, COVID and everything that that's that's happening here and around the world with regard to uh, COVID. Have you done well? What specifically have you done uh, around COVID? This we've done a lot around. And, and even taking a step back from that, what is it like being an epidemiologist now? Um, you know, with epidemiologists at center stage during a global pandemic. Do you, does it crazy. feel like you're at center stage? Like it. It does. It does. Okay. I mean, um, interviews. I've done a lot more interviews this year than I probably did in the last three years. Uh-huh. Um, and it's sometimes exciting, sometimes it's not, because you end up asking the same questions over and over again. And, um, and people have had very different experiences. There are people who've published papers and they got a lot of negative feedback from, from the public or attacks. Um, I even have friends who have been attacked by opposition parties in the countries where they're working. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's, yeah, it's not always fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what are the questions that you don't get asked over and over again in these interviews around COVID epidemiology that you think you should be asked more of because they're, you know, interesting and people aren't thinking about them? Hmm. I think there's been a lot more conversation around um, race and ethnicity in the last two months than there was at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And and I'm, I'm glad that it's happening because I think it's very, very important that we should have those conversations and how different groups of people are being affected by this and what we can do to make sure that those populations have the resources they need and that they're receiving the treatments that they need. And is that an area that you've researched? That is an area that I have collaborated with researchers to look at. Um, so we've we did one study where we looked at um, low income versus high income individuals and how there was social distancing during lockdowns in across the U.S. And what we found was that people from lower income neighborhoods were their, their social distancing was less compared to higher income groups. And that could be because a lot of people have essential jobs. And so they're constantly out and being in contact with people and being exposed to the virus. So they're more likely to get infected and bring that back to their households and get others infected as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think you hear a lot about, at least if you're, you know, paying attention to the disparity in the way COVID has impacted different communities, that there are in a lot of communities, Black communities, Latino communities, this kind of essential worker status. People need to go work, you know, in public transportation systems and grocery stores and and things like this. Um, And so that is going to drive a lot of the exposure. Did you were there any changes in the, or any differences in the way, you know, aside from kind of work-related responsibilities, people responded to um, the disease from a social distance perspective? So the data that we looked at was mobility data. So we okay. can always see where people were uh, at different times and when lockdowns were happening and when they were not happening. So we didn't really have information on like individual groups and what other experiences they were 
they were going through at the time. Got it. Um, but there, there are two major issues, I think. One being that a lot of those groups are doing essential works, and so they're being exposed. But then they are also the ones that have a lot of the um, pre-existing conditions that tend to lead to severe COVID disease. And we know that one of the reasons why things exist the way they do is because of structural inequalities to what do people have access to, what resources do they have, and how can they be healthy when they don't have the same access to the kinds of resources that higher income groups have. Mm -hmm. So what's an example of of that? Um, Grocery stores, for example. If you go to different neighborhoods, if you go to poorer neighborhoods, you look at the grocery store options, you don't always have access to healthy foods. So the foods that are on the shelves are not always the kinds of foods that you will see in higher income neighborhoods. Cost is also an issue. So you can have access to a place, but you can't afford the food because you don't have the money to pay for it. Mm -hmm. And so that, as an example, is an effect that impacts long-term health and chronic disease and and all this. Precisely, yeah. Okay. Um, It seems like a lot of the, a lot of, studies on social distancing or, or a lot of work has been done around these mobility data sets from, you know, cell phone data and, and others. Um, you also looked at um, the role of, um, you know, when you talk about kind of the role of income in the disease, is it primarily around attach, attaching this mobility data to um you know, where folks lived or are there other ways that you've looked at that question? Yeah, it's mostly around where folks live versus where they work. So if you look at someone's uh, timeline, are they spending more time at where you would consider, let's say, um, a grocery store or are they spending more time at your home? Okay. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Um, what are some of the other examples that you gave uh, at your talk or, you know, around um, the, this intersection of machine learning and epidemiology? Yeah. So one of the other ones that I mentioned before was still back to satellite images, but looking more at the environment and how that links to health. So that was one of the examples that I gave where we were looking at disparities across neighborhoods in six different cities and thinking about if you looked at a neighborhood, can you use that as an indicator to predict the health outcomes of individuals in that neighborhood? And that gets you thinking about access and how can we change the way neighborhoods are designed so that people have access to the resources that they need to be healthy. So if you're starting from a satellite image and you're using that to try to predict what, what specifically? Access Obesity prevalence? Yeah. Okay. Um, I can imagine like so many different ways that you might go about, you know, trying to trying to do that. What what did you find worked? Oh my. Um you mean in terms of methods or how yeah, in terms of in terms of met well. I guess both, you know, what, what methods drove you to what conclusions, you know, in terms of um, things that were predictive of obesity? 
So we use we use uh, transfer learning and um, convolutional neural networks to process the images. And one of the reasons why we did the study is that there are actually quite a few studies showing that what you have access to, so the built environment influences health and influences obesity prevalence in the US. But studies tend to measure different things. So some would measure the amount of green spaces, some would look at sidewalks, some would right. look at other aspects of the neighborhood. And we wanted to see if there was a way that we could process images and build something that was comprehensive. So instead of trying to count one thing, can we count mm -hmm. everything that is present and then use that as a way to look at health in neighborhoods? Okay, yeah, I think that's what I was getting at with the question. You can, you know, if you think about this in terms of counting, you know, maybe, you know, the number of hospitals or grocery stores or green spaces or parks or, you know, running tracks or, or things like that. Yeah. And your approach was to, well, you know, that's kind of your traditional feature engineering. Let's just throw all these at a network and give it some labels and see if it can predict anything. Yeah. And did it work? It worked. <laughs> it worked. Um, the review process was very funny. Um, I don't know if it's funny, but it was interesting. Um, How so? Comments like, um, this is too predictive. Um, and <laughs> Meaning they didn't think that it was actually working? They or... had never seen anything like it before. And so we were arguing that maybe the reason why you have these seen This is in public health journals as opposed to machine learning journals. Precisely. Okay. Precisely. Um, and when I did run the models, I thought it was too predictive too. And okay. we had to rerun it multiple times. And then we tried several different approaches because I was I wanted to be as careful as, as I could be. Yeah. For review. And that was one of the comments that the reviewers wrote back. And so we had to explain that if you look at the literature, people have always looked at the single thing. And we're trying to look at everything together at the same time. So if we're getting predictions that have not been observed in the past, we don't really have anything to compare to. So we can say this person did something similar. So let's look at the differences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so did you try applying any explainability techniques or model introspection techniques to try to get a sense for what the model was keying in on to make its prediction? We started working on that. Um, never finished. Um, but. <laughs> Um, but what we found is green spaces seem to be a very strong predictor. Of okay. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Um, and then uh, another topic that you talked a little bit about was product surveillance. What is what does that mean? So the specific example I gave was on um, on safe food products. So on safe. Okay. When people consume unsafe food products, they can get sick, they can even die from it. And so we, we've been thinking about ways in which we could monitor unsafe food products to identify them um, as soon as possible. So then someone like the FDA can do a food recall. Okay. So they do a food recall, they would pull out everything from the market for that particular batch. And then hopefully people do not get, do not, do not continue to consume it and get sick from it. So this particular study looked at Amazon reviews, Amazon okay. product reviews, where we we collected data over, well, someone else collected data and they made it publicly available over several years. And then we looked at that data to see whether we could build, um, uh, what did we use? We used BERT. 
So if we could okay. train BERT to identify unsafe food products based on the reviews that people were writing. And what were some of the indicators that, uh, or examples of the indicators that a product was unsafe? Was it as simple as I ate this whatever and I was vomiting in two days or something? Yeah. Yeah, so um, people will use very specific descriptions, like um, you had an odor, um, the taste had changed, mm-hmm. or um, and then they'll talk about symptoms like vomiting. But then mm-hmm. you also had products that were mislabeled. So it wasn't that they were bad, is that they either contained something that was not included in the label. So people who have allergies were complaining about that. So. Uh, Someone would say, I have a milk allergy and this has milk, but it didn't say that it has milk. Mm. And so the the data set that you use, was this one of the these kind of large Amazon pu- uh, product review data sets? It wasn't specific to your case at all? Yeah, it was It was one of those data sets. And then okay. we had to, to process the data. So we started the project in the summer of 2017. And it was supposed to be a summer project. So one of these data science for social good um, programs at the University of Washington. Okay. And at the end of the summer, we were still processing the data um, because <laughs> we're trying to figure out the data was huge, um, but then also trying to figure out whether it could be useful at all was, was a challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, the major challenge for the project was actually processing the data. Because we had to, we had, so we have Amazon data, we have the product information, and then we had information from the FDA about products that they had recalled. So we had to take the Amazon data and match it to the FDA data. And that's where the issue started. Mm. Because you And the FDA data didn't have an ASIN. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) It didn't. (laughs) That would have made it a lot easier. It would have been so much easier and it would have even been more easier if they actually had the complete product code ID, which they didn't. So uh-huh. you would have products that were recalled and some of the numbers had been stripped and you have an incomplete code and we would not know whether it actually matched the Amazon data, that, the product that we're looking at, or if it was a different product. So we spent so much time trying to match those numbers to each other. I don't imagine, I don't know whether this is something that impacted your results, but I would think on top of that, um, particularly, I think it's come to light a lot now in the context of COVID, but there's a ton of manipulation of listings on the part of um, sellers, you know, particularly these folks that will like import products from China. A lot of times they're, um, you know, they'll like create these, you know, fake listings for things that Amazon is not paying attention to, get a lot of generic reviews and then swap it out for resp- respirators or, you know, masks or things like that, that, um, you know, Amazon is paying more attention to, you know, so that they have a, a review base. There's a ton of games that folks play with these that I've got to yeah. imagine that if you're trying to, to, do something for real with this kind of data will make for a lot of messy work. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. The data that we had was a bit older, so I don't know how much people were 
paying attention to Amazon at the time. Okay. Um, <laughs> but things have definitely changed and I, that would have affected our results. Okay. Yeah. Uh, any other key themes from your talk that we haven't touched on? Um, Is there anything else? I'm trying to remember. Um, so <laughs> I talked a bit about social media data, but that's also linked to um, health behaviors because we, we've been looking at how people talk about things like exercise and diet and social media, um, okay. specifically Twitter, and how that could inform us about prevalence of physical activity in the US, for mm -hmm. example. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, what's your sense for the uh, kind of the state of the application of machine learning in the field uh, it just looking at or thinking about the the various places that you've applied it um, it seems like there's a ton of opportunity to take off the shelf uh, you know models and and things that um, that uh, you know are not you're not kind of making exotic new network architectures. You're just kind of applying stuff to data sets in interesting ways. Sometimes, you know, for interesting places, and you're able to make a, a contribution. Is that um, you think? Do you think that that will continue for a while? Like, what's the dynamic in that field for folks interested in machine learning and um, you know and health? I think in my experience, the the simple methods tend to work pretty well, and I don't need to go to the complicated stuff or try to create anything. Um, and it's for me, I always aim to start with the simple stuff. So mm -hmm. if I have a data set, what is the simplest method I can use for this? And then if that doesn't work, then I start thinking of more complicated, complicated approaches. And I think there are so many opportunities for doing that. Um, there's so many different data sources that we can use to answer different questions and then move from not just answering questions, but thinking about how do we create real-time applications that can impact people's lives. Um, the foodborne one is a very good example because we're able to walk, work with the Department of Health and they could use that information for decision-making. But you can think about all the ways in which we can get data, process data using the simple approaches, and then have someone use that for, for making decisions that can improve people's health. Mm -hmm. what, what are some examples of, do, do you have ideas that you know come to mind that um, are, are things that are still needed in that community? I, I guess, <clears throat> you know, where I'm coming from is, you know, we talk about a lot of exotic stuff on the podcast all the time you know these gigantic models and and kind of cutting edge approaches there and we talk about even in the context of public health you know very you know tech forward approaches to things like contact tracing mm -hmm. you know um but it, it's just striking me that you're having you know a huge impact with stuff that we consider pedestrian in, in some circles, right? It's like yeah. oh, CNN on some satellite images. <laughs> I did that in a Kaggle competition. <laughs> you mean I could actually impact people's lives with this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Um, I think it always starts at the community level. So mm-hmm. thinking about what is happening in local communities and how impact can be had in that. So one organization that I'm involved with is Data Science Africa. Okay. And we have um, conferences across the continents, but usually in West Africa or East Africa. We actually have one ongoing right now, but it's all virtual because okay. we can meet. <laughs> yeah. But people will come to those spaces are working in their local communities and they're using some of those very simple approaches to solve problems around agriculture, around health, um, develop tools around um, health education, for example. How can we make sure that young people get access to information that they need? Um, if, if it's a topic that is either sensitive in their culture and something that they don't usually talk about, but they need that information, how can we get that information to them on their mobile phones, which they have? Um, so very simple approaches and also making the point of engaging with the community. Mm-hmm. So instead of just thinking, what is the problem that might this community might be uh, dealing with and then trying to solve it, actually go into the community and ask people, what is the problem you're dealing with? So if you have a local farm, what is the problem you have on your farm and how can I help you solve that, that problem? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Well, Elaine, thanks so much for taking the time to chat. It was great learning about your research. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sam. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.